Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. This is Kirk. Uh, John is out interviewing witnesses today for a big trial that uh, we will have coming up very soon. So I'm flying solo today. Hope that's okay with you. Uh, but hope everyone's enjoying their Labor Day weekend and ready for the fall to come. Not quite sure if I'm ready, but uh, it's happening. Summer always goes by so fast here in Wisconsin. But if you're listening elsewhere in the world, uh, you probably have figured out that you can get our podcast anywhere on Apple uh, iTunes or whatever they're calling it now, Apple Podcasts. And, of course, on the WHBL website, there are archives that go back many, many years uh, where this show has been featured every Saturday morning from 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock, going back, I think, oh gosh, well over 11 years now? Hmm. So, I wanted to share with you a big project that I'm working on, and, and I'll also get into the reasons why. But you've heard me talk on the show about this uh, rule that the Department of Transportation has when anybody has a fourth offense OWI or higher that kicks in this uh, lifetime revocation of operating privileges. And if you're not familiar with this, you definitely should be if you've ever had any prior convictions, even going back a long time ago. Um, and you'd be surprised how many you know, people that actually applies to because we go back to 1989 and look forward from there to count prior convictions. And by the way, a, a conviction, so to speak, includes any suspension or revocation that arises from an alcohol-related incident. And that includes convictions for operating while under the influence of an intoxicant or a controlled substance, operating with a prohibited alcohol concentration, or a refusal to take a chemical test. Now that has created a bit of controversy because very recently, within the past three years, there has been a constitutional issue relating to refusing to take a test. And all of this comes from litigation that occurred all the way up to the Supreme Court dealing with how the various states, uh, some of which criminalize the refusal to take a chemical test. Now, in Wisconsin, it is not and never has been considered a criminal penalty in and of itself. So if someone refuses a test that is um, lawfully requested by a law enforcement officer, the consequence comes down to a revocation of operating privileges, a waiting period before one can obtain an occupational license, and also the installation of an ignition interlock device. But it does not call for jail in and of itself. So, and this is all because it goes under the statutory scheme that uh, relates to the Department of Transportation's authority to revoke people's operating privileges based on a quote-unquote conviction, even though it's not a criminal charge, for a refusal. Now, some states throughout the country did uh, criminalize or make a, uh, you know, a criminal, a jail-type penalty for refusing a test and that issue was brought up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court declared that when somebody um, is saying no 
to a request by a law enforcement officer to, you know, search, search their blood, conduct an actual, you know, invasive search that a person has the right to say, I'm not consenting to that because it is a search. So it was surprising that it took us until just a few years ago through the entire history of all these um, drunk driving statutes that go back, you know, of course, 50, 60, 70 years in some cases, that they finally acknowledged that that scenario when an officer says, hey, will you consent to a search of your blood is the same as consenting or not consenting to any search, like a search of your home. If they come to your knock on your door and say, hey, we'd like to search your house, you can say no, right? Everybody knows that, or you should know that. So now we're dealing with a situation where, since that is the case, it's been expanded further to what happens when somebody has a refusal on their record and that is being used to enhance the current offense to make it so it's a higher level penalty. Well, the Wisconsin Supreme Court just ruled not too long ago that you can't do that. You can't use a refusal in the past as a reason to make it a higher level offense for criminal purposes. However, the DOT maintains that it can still revoke for the appropriate period of time based on their regulatory authority to do so. So, it's very interesting that um, this kind of ties into a lot of the controversy that's going right on right now as it relates to um, COVID vaccines, mask mandates, and so on. Because part of the issue that we're still working out in the court system is whether or not, say, for example, does the governor have the authority to issue a statewide mask mandate? And that was challenged based on the fact that, um, at least initially, that authority had been exercised either directly by the governor or delegated to an administrative agency that was responsible for implementing that in such a way that it bypassed the decision-making of an elected official. Hmm. And that, you see, we get into kind of a uh, interesting mess here in terms of who does what and who's allowed to do what. And the argument there is that something that relates directly to someone's personal health choices, that the decision should be made by a legislator or someone that is has elected um, responsibility and, uh, I guess, liability uh, at risk of not getting reelected, I suppose. And it's not supposed to be, if it's something on that level, it should not be an executive function because it would have to be a true emergency that bypasses the normal lawmaking process. So I, I point all that out, not because the show is about that, but because it's a similar issue in terms of what the legislature has delegated to the Department of Transportation to make decisions about revoking people's operating privileges when they have a certain number of prior offenses. We get into a blend here of whether this is a, a sentencing function of a circuit court judge, or is this something that the legislature has given the DOT authority to do regardless of what a judge wants to do. And the reason it's a mix is because it's considered a mandatory action by the court. 
Again, if somebody has a fourth offense or higher, then the court is required to impose a lifetime revocation of operating privileges with the opportunity to apply for an occupational license after 10 years. So and that's not that it will be granted necessarily. Someone can ask. So we're talking about a best case scenario for somebody who ends up in this situation will have to go for 10 years of their life without driving anywhere at all, sober, drunk, whatever, cannot drive. And the interesting thing about this and the reason why I raise this in this context is that let's say a judge says, I don't think that's fair. I'm going to impose simply a three-year revocation of operating privileges. I don't care what the DOT says. This is what I'm going to do. Well, over the years, the Department of Transportation here in Wisconsin has taken the position that they have the regulatory authority to impose their own revocation regardless of what the judge orders. Now, that's interesting if you think about it because basically they're saying you know, the judge, the elected official that makes the decision um, can be overridden by the Department of Transportation's own perception of what a mandatory um, you know, penalty should be. So you see the analogy here. If we have concerns about agencies doing things to people um, because they perceive that they have that authority or ability to do so, there is, therein lies uh, a problem. And it basically, there's an avenue by which I believe this can be challenged. And it's along those lines, but there's more to it. And part of it has to do with the fact that there's been a long, long, long line of cases that talk about whether there's a right to drive or a privilege to drive. Just like, you know, do you have a right to possess firearms or do you have a privilege to possess firearms? So it is complicated, but we'll talk about it more when we come back right after these messages. Talking about this um, law that requires a fourth offender for a drunk driving case to lose their operating privileges altogether for life and how that's imposed where it came from in the future of this whole thing and just a little side note here um this is sort of a big big project i've been working on since this law came into effect i was just talking to somebody the other day about you know after you have so many decades of practice in a particular area one of the things that you gain with that expertise is your your intuition or your instincts. And one of the things that I do is that when these new laws are created, you know, some might call it the smell test, but I, I just look at it in terms of, does this feel right? Does this jibe with my understanding of how our freedoms and protections, um, you know, against what the government wants to do to us? In this case, I think somewhat arbitrarily, um, does it, does it make sense? And this didn't make any sense to me. And let me explain why. Because, first of all, a little bit of history. Our legislature has gone through a number of experiments over the years, uh, all of which have failed. And what I mean by that is that um, consequences for drunk driving other than jail, I mean, we all know that part of it, right? Starting with the second offense or higher in Wisconsin, 
you go to jail if you get convicted. It starts off with a little bit and it goes up from there. And then over the years, the, with the trend being that first we lowered the prohibited alcohol concentration going way back, it was 0.15 at one time, then it went down to 0.10, then it went down to 0.08, and then we imposed this new standard where if somebody has a fourth fence or higher and they're driving around, uh, it would be a 0.02, which is basically one drink or less. And you know, I've said this before, but would, wouldn't it be kind of easier to apply if the rule was no alcohol at all in your system? I, I know it creates problems in terms of, you know, shouldn't you be allowed to have a glass of wine with dinner? Yeah, I get that. Or you know, like the next day, if you had you were at a party the night before and then you're driving to work and you've got like a .01 or something like that. I think that's why we have that, you know, little bit of margin there. But it does create some confusion in terms of, you know, part of any law is to give somebody a, a clear understanding of what they can or can't do. And don't we all have the right to conform to the law if we want to? Meaning you got to know what it is and you got to know what your conduct is. And I would dare say that no one knows if they have a 0 0.02 or not. That general guidance that you can have a drink or less isn't very good, right? I mean, what the intention is that you shouldn't have anything to drink if you're at that point. But getting back to the history of, of various efforts to be creative by our legislature, we went through a time period. And if you've been around long enough and you know, if you know anybody that had, and this used to apply to third offenses or higher, the Department of Transportation had a, had a rule that was actually um, initiated by the legislature and actually mandated by, um, you know, part of the sentencing structure, but it was connected with the way the DOT did things with their administrative authority. But a judge for a period of time was required to seize, have, have the police seize any vehicle that someone was driving if they can get convicted of a fourth offense or a third offense or higher. And, you know, think about it. So you're, you're driving around, you get uh, pulled over for a third offense, and then they put a title hold on your vehicle. And if you're convicted, the judge had to, required, mandatory. It was required that the judge order that your vehicle be forfeited. Wouldn't matter if it was a moped or a Maserati, it still must be taken from you. Okay, so we'll come back to that, the problems that occurred when that occurred. But then we moved on to an era where that became optional, and then, you know, nobody did it after that because the whole structure of the thing was rather silly. But then we moved to an era where there was a combination of either immobilization or ignition interlock that occurred. Immobilization is just what you think it is. They put a boot on it. You know, they call it the Denver boot. I think it was first started in Denver where if somebody um, has a certain, I think back then it had to do with like parking tickets or something like that. But if you have a certain number of tickets, the police will find your car and put this device on it that makes it undrivable. And that was controversial <laughs> at the time because you know, they're leaving it somewhere, but it can't be moved. So 
back then a person could you know theoretically be ordered to have one of these immobilization devices installed on their vehicle and or, or installation of an ignition interlock device but when this first started there really weren't a whole lot of ignition interlock devices that were available because the technology and the availability of those things was very limited so a lot of times people would opt for well I'll, you know let's just do immobilization and you'd have to immobilize one car and then people figured out that does nothing at all to deter somebody from drinking and driving because if you're you've got one of your vehicles immobilized for a period of time you there's nothing wrong or illegal about somebody driving another car so turned out that was dumb and then of course the thing that did take hold was the ignition interlock device and how that gets applied so a combination of lobbying from mothers against drunk driving and other organizations as well as Really, it was some strong lobbying from the companies and, and uh, researchers that developed this technology convinced the legislature to make this kind of like the primary thing that happens when someone gets convicted. And it resulted in an explosion of those types of businesses. I remember when uh, there wasn't even a single company in Sheboygan County that was that had the ability to install an ignition interlock device and then soon there became one then there was two well now I don't even know it's probably you know 50 or 60 different places that you can go um, and of course that results in competition and lower prices and all this other stuff but it also resulted in quite a business boom for that particular industry so my point about all of that is that the seizure or forfeiture of motor vehicle was something that the uh, state figured out was a very very bad idea and that has mostly to do with the fact that the person who ends up suffering or the entity that ends up suffering if for example a fifty thousand dollar car was taken from the person who was driving it odds are that the person who was driving it doesn't completely own that car unless they're a very very rich person meaning most people that are driving any car, unless you bought it for cash and it was a $200 car, so you had to finance it, right? I mean, that's a very common scenario. Someone makes a down payment or no down payment or it's based on a trade-in, and then you're paying off that car to uh, a finance company, a bank, or whatever you're doing. You don't own it. You may own a little piece of it, and then eventually you might own the whole thing, but the vast majority of people that are driving vehicles are in that scenario where they don't have the title yet in their name because they're still paying for it well if you take the vehicle away from the person obviously they're not going to be paying for it anymore because it's not even in their possession it's now in the state's possession and they're not going to call up the finance company and say too bad you're not getting paid because that would create all those financial entities as uh you know being victimized that they, they have to suffer as a result of something they didn't do except extend credit to someone who lost their vehicle <laughs> okay so because of those problems that arose the state then had to spend a lot of money by paying off the vehicle before it could be auctioned so you got a big old 
car lot there. And in order to transfer title on any vehicle, as you know, it has to be free and clear. So the state was spending a ton of money paying off these, you know, uh, car payments to the institutions that had extended that credit and then selling the vehicles at a great loss. And this wonderful idea that was supposed to deter people from drunk driving ended up costing the state a tremendous amount of money and resulted in, you know, basically a collapsing of the infrastructure that was designed uh, around it. So, you know, think about storage of these vehicles, the personnel required to, you know, sell them, well, all the paperwork, all that other stuff, it was just a disaster. So the legislature very soon after that made it optional and then they just basically took it off the table. So failed experiment. All right, time for a break, we'll come right back. And we're back, we're talking about um, legislation over the years designed to address the problem of drunk driving, reducing the drunk driving and so on. One thing that is interesting about our state is that we still remain the only one in the country that treats a first offense drunk driving as non-criminal. It's a citation. You can't go to jail for it. Um, every other state has that as a possibility. You know that if you've listened to my show before or if you're at all familiar with how those types of things work. but. Um, what we're talking about is this law that requires a judge to impose a lifetime ban on operating privileges, and if the, even if the judge doesn't do that, the Department of Transportation will, as soon as they receive notice of that conviction. So uh, I had just spoken before the break about the fact that there had been this failed effort to deter people from drinking and driving by taking their cars away and how that really had not been very well thought out when that proposal came about, created kind of a disaster um, as far as implementation goes. And, and then they moved on with another, another structure. They basically repealed all that and said, oh, never mind. And uh, this mobilization that took place afterwards, that also became something that was, you know, frankly, inconvenient for law enforcement because the sheriff's department would have to go out and install this thing. What about people that live in cities like Milwaukee, where um, you often have to park on the street because that's your only parking area? Well, if you immobilize something so it can't be moved, well, what then? You can't move it from one side of the street to the other. You can't get it off the street if it needs to be plowed. You, you simply can't move it for a period of time. So what was happening is people would get their vehicles immobilized, then then there would be some reason where it needed to be moved. I remember a case where, uh, you know, there was going to be construction in an area. Well, I think it was someone's driveway was going to be uh, repaired by the city, and they were requiring the person to move their vehicle, but it had an immobilization device on it. And so, of course, we had to coordinate with the sheriff's department in that county to come by and take it off and move it and then put it back on. I mean, you can see what a what a pain that is. And and again, the law was that you couldn't possibly have a law where you'd have to put an immobilization device on every vehicle that you might have access to, right? Crazy. Um, so so they got rid of that too. They were like, oh no, we created too many problems. So uh, let's just talk about the trend 
lately in another area of the law, and that is we have been talking for years about this concept of expungement or expunction is the correct term, but we've started saying expungement just because I guess we like to say that. <laughs> it's easier to say. But the reason I'm talking about this is that there had been there has been a bipartisan push to get rid of old convictions that may have been a reflection of misjudgments or a, a different era that someone was at a different life. And since that time they've they've moved on and recovered and so on. And and think about it. So first of all, it results in a person uh, if they're successful in getting a record expunged, it doesn't appear publicly. Someone can't judge someone else for um, their misdeeds. But also, it becomes something that if you do get in trouble 20 years later, you're, they're not going to go back and say, hey, you've got this prior thing that happened as a countable or you know, an enhancement type scenario. And the reason, all the reasoning behind this expungement notion, the push towards that, is an acknowledgement of the fact that our laws should be designed in such a way that they promote good citizenship, they allow for an opportunity for one to rehabilitate themselves, they also don't want to have an ongoing economic impact on our citizenry. And that's important. Because you know, that's why many Republicans, in fact, who are very much oriented towards the expansion of business, business opportunities, business ownership, etc., um, have pushed for this as well because it create it opens up economic opportunities. It opens up the ability for someone to make their own way, get a good job, work hard, support a family own a house, etc. So here we have this law that basically excludes a person from participating in normal society and will directly impact a person's ability to make a decent living. So I want you to think about that. Let's say you're prohibited from driving for at least the next 10 years and possibly the rest of your life. Doesn't that affect what job you can hold? It may very well result in you getting fired from your job. And then beyond that, your job prospects are limited to where you can take a bus or walk to or, or take an Uber or whatever, or rely upon family members. So here's another thing. What if you're in a family where both the, the both spouses or both of the couple whatever the case may be are both working full-time jobs to make ends meet to buy their kids clothes to buy them school supplies you know to try and raise a decent healthy family and it requires both you know partners in this situation to, to work full-time jobs compare that with somebody who's you know independently wealthy or has worked their way to the top of a CEO or whatever, and then they're that kind of person that, you know, has a stay-at-home wife and or whatever, that particular scenario. Well, if that guy ends up not ever being able to drive, he could probably get his wife or 
maybe one of his employees or one of his adult children or whatever kind of resources are out there to get him wherever he wants to go. I mean, think about it. You know, if you just hire a limo driver, if you've got the means, right? But if you don't have the means, it impacts you in a completely different and devastating way. So this is what I, re I really want you to think about is that we're creating almost a subclass of citizens that by their nature will have a much harder time living. You know, I mean, that that's what's wrong with all of this is that, and by the way, drinking and driving is a problem, of course, and we should do all we can to try and deter it and everything else. Yeah, I get that. But when you start goofing around with stuff that really doesn't have anything to do with drinking and driving, you know what has more to do with drinking and driving than taking away your operating privileges forever? You know, stopping the drinking. <laughs> okay? And that's always, even the ignition interlock device, it's not designed to stop you from driving. It's designed to stop you from drinking. Right? So when we get into this, and there's never been any law that that has been designed to stop you from driving altogether on the presumption that society simply can't trust you so let's say you have you know you had a bad bad couple of years 1990 1991 1992 you, you just have a flurry of you know drunk driving incidents and let's say you haven't had a drop of drink since then okay and then you get pulled over in 2021 and an officer thinks he smells alcohol in your breath, but you don't have any, you know, again, subjective opinion. Officer gets you out of the vehicle, doesn't think that you pass field sobriety tests very well, even though you've had nothing to drink. And then the officer asks you to submit to a chemical test and you say, well, why should I do that? I haven't been drinking. And then the cop says, too bad, you refused. Guess what? That person, even though they've been sober for over 20 years, 30 years, is going to lose their license for the rest of their life under this penalty structure. And that's not fair. But even if it was kind of a relapse incident, or let's say whatever the case may be, we have always, always wanted to put somebody in a position where they can, uh, with the guidance of perhaps probation, treatment, court supervision, whatever, we want people who aren't being sent off to prison to rehabilitate and regain their status as helpful citizens, good citizens, productive citizens that can lead a promising life. So I'm going to come when we come back, we're going to talk about this whole issue about whether one has a right to drive or if it's merely a privilege like getting a fishing license. And We'll talk about where we go from there in the foreseeable future. So we'll be right back after these messages. So there's a case that goes way, way, way back. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And it had to do with um, when automobiles were first being, you know, uh, used. I mean, shortly after the invention of the automobile. And if you've studied history or you probably learned this in high school or from various movies and things you've you've seen, but people weren't used to this, and this the idea of a machine that was you know being operated and you know propelled by a motor, and someone was steering it. Well, first of all, they were loud. 
they were unusual. They scared horses. There weren't really roads developed yet that um, accommodated these vehicles. And, and when it was an unusual thing for someone to own and operate a motor vehicle, there were a lot of regulations that were designed to, you know, in some ways deter someone from driving in a particular city or area or county and so on. But so really there, there was this case, it goes, as I said, it goes way back to that era. And there was uh, a requirement that somebody pay, apply for and obtain a permit to drive in a particular jurisdiction before driving in that jurisdiction. And although that law existed, there was, uh, it was a lot of hassle <laughs> to do that. And the infrastructure wasn't really in place yet for people to actually obtain these permits, so to speak. So this guy is driving his car and then, you know, a cop says, where's your permit? And he said, uh, I didn't know I needed one. And he says, well, yes, you do. And then he said, well, you know, how am I supposed to do that? And the cop's like, I don't know. <laughs> so it was this big rigmarole and it, and it really was an interesting case because it brought up the idea that if one, if a person purchases a thing like this expensive, uh, you know, contraption, a horseless carriage, and is driving it around. How, how, what right does a city have or a jurisdiction have to say, you can't come here unless you pass some un unachievable test? I mean, obviously the goal was to make it so people couldn't drive in the city. They just didn't want cars, right? And the theory from the, you know, the petitioner in that case is that I have the right to go where I want in this country. I am an American. I have a, I have my freedoms, my overall freedoms, but also the, the freedom to move about freely. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why we are a United States of America is that we don't have borders. I mean, that keep citizens in one place. You know, a New York citizen can pass freely into Pennsylvania and any law that would prohibit that would be unconstitutional on that basis, right? You follow me? So this was raised on that level that I, I've got a car, I wanna drive it in wherever, Toledo, and uh, they've got this law that is impossible to comply with, which therefore bans me from driving my car there, even though I should be allowed to. And the court came down saying, look, just because you have a car doesn't give you some enhanced right. You can still walk like everybody else. You can take the, you know, a horse like everybody else. You're not special just because you bought a car. And if the, there need to be regulations that go along with that, so be it. It's not a right. It's a privilege. And if you are going to access this privilege, you have to follow the rules that have been created, even if they're not possible, because you can't uh, supersede a local jurisdiction's desire to have a particular legislative structure. Okay? You following me? So for years and years and years and years, whenever this issue has come up about, okay, how does the ownership and operation or possession, I suppose, of a, of a motor vehicle impact one's right to be free to move about. And 
it's always come down to, well, there is, it's never been acknowledged that one has a right to drive. You can fly, you can walk, you can run, you can take an Uber, you can do all those things, and you don't have to drive. But what that doesn't contemplate is that there are many, many jobs, a lot of jobs, that um, require someone to drive as part of the job, or you're required to get there. And so think about this. Let's say I work at a factory that's 20 miles away. And because I've lost my driving privileges, my options are I have to move, I, I cannot live 20 miles away anymore, or I have to hire someone to drive me, or I have to be rich enough just to have, or, you know, bountiful enough to have people and friends that will drive me, that who, who never, who didn't drive drunk ever. Um, and now those people, I'm depending on them. I'm depending on their time, their energy, their willingness, which is just happenstance. You know, it may or may not be there. Or I have to move close enough to that factory so I can walk. Hmm. Um, so think about that. If you're actually telling me that I can't work like a regular person, I've got limited options for the jobs I can do. I've got limited options for the type of life I will lead for the rest of my life based on my individual circumstances, which of course is going to be inconsistently applied. I'd suggest that the person that hurts the most as a result of this is the person who's you know, struggling to get by, barely making ends meet, and needs to drive someplace to get to work. There's another consistent theme in our laws in Wisconsin. Let's say, for example, you don't have a driver's license and you're driving. And I don't mean for it's been revoked for alcohol reasons, but let's just say you never got one. Okay. Well, what happens is uh, you get you get pulled into court and they say, hey, it's our policy in this state to make sure that drivers have licenses. We want you to have a license. We want you to pass the test. We want to make sure you know how to drive. We want, and we want you to have that opportunity. So what we're going to do is that we're going to hold this case open while you go get your license. And if you come back to court and say, I've got my license, they'll dismiss the charge or they'll amend it to something where you pay a $10 fine, something like that. And it's been, you know, again, we, we, we've gone through this as far as it's a good thing for operators of vehicles to have licenses. So this has all been presuming that someone, as I've said, has the desire, ability, and um, wherewithal to follow the law. But what we are also doing, let's go back to that scenario where I have to drive 20 miles to work in a factory. What is likely going to happen, and I don't think I'm being uh, wrong to, to extend the logic to this point, and I think you know what I'm about to say. It's very likely that people who have their operating privileges revoked for life are probably going to drive anyway and hope that they don't get caught out of necessity, out of sheer necessity. Imagine going the rest of your life where you would never, you just can't drive ever anywhere on in any type of vehicle and all the things that might come up 
your wife is having a baby and you got to get her to the hospital. Nope, can't do it. You, uh, you know, your daughter has a flat tire and you're the only one that is available to go out and rescue her. Can't do it. Um, you get a, you get a promotion and you have to, uh, move to a different office or be able to travel to a different office. Can't do it. This, this has a tremendous economic and social impact. And, you know, I'm not, I know I'm exaggerating here, but it's like, you know, it's like telling people that they got to live in the sewer system and fend for themselves, like a, like a, an army of reptile people or something. I know I'm exaggerating, but the point is um, putting a very heavy burden on all of us, all of society by going down that path. And it's ludicrous. One might say, well, at that point, a person can never be trusted to drive a vehicle again because of the chance that they may have had something to drink in the interest of public safety. That, that's basically what it's saying, is that you've, you've proven yourself to be so unreliable that forever we're taking that operate, operating privilege away from you. Okay? That is going to have an impact on all of us. I, I expect that the legislature is going to reverse this at some time, like they have in the past, with these ill-informed experiments. But for the time being, we're dealing with uh, a major issue that will have an impact on really all of society. If it goes, if, if the short-sighted inability to contemplate the ramifications of legislation continues. Well, that's all we have for this week, and join us next week as you can every single Saturday from 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. This is Legal Offense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend.